Good morning. Welcome. This is the first emotional sobriety workshop uh, using the traditions, the spiritual principles of the traditions. My name is Ann, and I am an alcoholic. And we'd like to start off by having a, a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our um, coordinator of this. is uh, Dickon. He's from the Macklin Group. is his home group, and he has... Um, put together several of these workshops over the years. I don't know how many, but I was very impressed when I met him at the Woodstock of the South Convention in December, and the idea came about to have this, a little uh, group started, and this is the product of that thought. So I'm thankful for this spiritual consciousness that pulled us together today, and without any more pause, Dick. My name is Dick, and can you hear me through this? Yeah, all right. Good. I can't hear out of my left ear, so, uh, uh, which is something new. If you stay sober long enough, there are all kinds of things that you get to enjoy that you didn't enjoy before you got here, and, uh, um, and they have to do with aging, which most of us would not do if we had not stopped drinking. So there's, there's a plus side and there's a downside. Um, I am an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is June the 8th, uh, 1977. And uh, so 33 years ago, uh, Tuesday a week ago, um, I had been uh, bleeding from the stomach uh, for two years. I hadn't had a meal in two years. Um, all I did was drink whiskey, pass out, come to, drink whiskey, pass out, come to, um, and finally got to the point where that wouldn't do it anymore. Um, at that time, I owned a pair of pants, a shirt, a pair of loafers that had holes in the bottom of them. I'd been evicted from my apartment, but I had a weapon. I'm a Vietnam veteran and was a, a trained uh, marksman. That didn't everything to do with me having the weapon at that time, but I was a little paranoid, and so I still had a 45. And um, I got ready to put a bullet in my head. And uh, because people like you and Alcoholics Anonymous had made it clear that this thing works to a lot of people. Um, when I cried out to God, uh, I walked up to a phone booth on a street corner, and uh, I was crying. I didn't even have a nickel. And I said, um, uh, I think I'm alcoholic. I need help. And because of that, the operator connected me to the central office of Atlanta, uh, and uh, there was a woman there who had started working there a couple years earlier, and uh, her name was Helen and she's one of your presenters today. So 33 years ago, uh, about a week or so ago, um, if she had not answered the phone, I wouldn't be here. And um, uh, that's really what this Emotional Sobriety Workshop is about. Uh, it is about becoming useful, usefully whole, in a way that affects every part of our lives. Um, this is the 75th anniversary of Alcoholics Anonymous, so we're a lot more mature as a fellowship than we were when we first started. And most of us spend our entire lives working off of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was written by a group of people, none of whom had more than three years' sobriety. 
And uh, if you are new, three years seems like a lot of time. If you're five years, you remember how goofy you were at three. <laughs> if you have 20 years, you don't want somebody with three years unattended on your property. So <laughs> you, you, can, you can tell that this was a divinely inspired book, but uh, one of the things the book does not say is more will be revealed. It's nowhere in there. It says more will be disclosed. Close, but, you know, we, I, I see banners that say more will be revealed and it quotes the big book. It's not in the big book, but more will be disclosed is. And what we're really talking about is the 12th step. Um, when the 12th step was written, it was written in such a way that, uh, uh, that, that we really didn't know what was to come. And it says when more will be disclosed, we didn't know what was to come. Um, this last weekend when we celebrated, um, I was honored to speak at Founders Day, and uh, there are 20,000 people there, and uh, lots of energy. But we had a countdown, and in the countdown, the guy that won the countdown had 61 years. And when he stood up, uh, everybody, because they had video cameras on everything, and uh, all this stuff is new, having video and things like that. We didn't have any of this stuff when I came to day, eh? so it's all new, but it's like being on the Jumbotron, and, you know, so when you, so anyway, so there's this picture on the Jumbotron of this, this white-haired man who's standing like this, waving with 61 years. And I'm sure there were people there that were new who thought, oh, that's a good guy, he's been going to meetings and he's still sober. Well, it's not like that. I don't see people stay sober for any long period of time unless they develop emotional sobriety. Now and then I know some people that are bitter all the way to the end. They turn into very people that I wouldn't want to be like. And somehow they don't take a drink. But that's the rarity. Most of the people who don't grow, don't continue to grow, get drunk. Or they're miserable while they're not drinking. And this guy who stood up, everybody applauded. But 95% of the people didn't know who he was. I know him. So when I was speaking, I said, uh, many of you don't know, but the guy that stood up is not standing up because he's been attending meetings. He goes to meetings, but he's standing up because he's been active. He's done as much to carry the message as anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was a friend of Bill Wilson's. His name was Mel Barker. He wrote Pass It On, the book that uh, we have. He's written about 20 other books. He's written over 100 articles in the grapevine. He's one of the most prolific writers there have been. He was a professional writer before he got to AA, but he turned his talents towards uh, educating people in and out of the fellowship about Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, so he, by the way, is going to be here along with uh, Bill Borchert, who did uh, My Name is Bill W. and the Lois Wilson story that just came out, are going to be uh, uh, at uh, the National Archives Workshop, which uh, will be held in Macon the last weekend of September. And there's some flyers out there for anybody who's really interested. Uh, so he stood up, and people kind of got it. They, uh, they gave him a standing ovation again. They realize that we who are here for a while are here because we are working, not just in AA, but in all areas of our life. And that's really what emotional sobriety is about. The, the term emotional sobriety uh, was something that was not bandied around until the fellowship was 20 years old. Most of our early communication was seen through Bill's eyes. And uh, we didn't have a need in the fellowship until Bill personally had a need. That's pretty much the way we are, that's the way I am. I didn't learn how to love somebody unconditionally uh, until I had to work with a new drunk. And I had to do that in order to stay sober. And when I first got sober, um, I lived in a basement apartment and I had uh, uh, a bunk 
that uh, they allowed me to stay in, and there was a bunk next door, and we didn't have a treatment center. This was in Louisville, Kentucky. After Helen answered the phone, I did get sober, but I was homeless. So I went back to Louisville, Kentucky, where, where I'm from, and uh, one of the older members let me stay in, in this basement. I stayed in one bed, and I stayed up with the drunks. And I would love them unconditionally. The first few that went back out, I got irritated, and then it was pointed out that I was staying sober. And so I continued doing it. But I developed a compassion because why would God let me stay sober and not let these people stay sober? I don't know. I still don't know the answer to that question, why people go back out. But I developed what we call unconditional love for this alcoholic. And yet I would continue going as I started to make amends. I was estranged from my family, but as I started to make amends and go to my family, I would get into arguments with my dad about politics or other things and leave in a huff. So I would give a break to some guy who was rude to me, angry. All he did was throw up for three days, and then he left, you know, the new guy. And uh, I'd give him a break and love him. But to somebody whose heart I had broken, who had tried so hard to give me the best they could in life, I wouldn't give them a break at all. I had to learn unconditional love in AA before I could learn it outside. Well, this is the same thing. The principles that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous are things that we may learn in here at a group conscience meeting or if you go to an intergroup meeting. Um, and we learn how to get along with each other inside Alcoholics Anonymous. But those same principles were designed not by Bill, because I don't think Bill knew the entire extent of what he was sharing when, when we, he was organizing our early writing. Uh, but, but by God, so that we would have the tools to live with other people to take care of our finances, to take care of uh, all the affairs that we have to do in life. Now, how many people in this room have had a desire to drink in the last week? Okay, about five. So I'm going to say, you know, less than 10%, 5%, whatever it is. Um, the basis, we have a triangle now, colleagues Anonymous, the basis is recovery. And those are the 12 steps. And if you have taken those 12 steps and worked all the way through them, you're going to have some, uh, you're going to have some experiences called a spiritual awakening. And uh, we can tell if we've had a spiritual awakening. Uh, in the 12 and 12s it says, the joy of living is the theme of A's 12 step, and action is his key word. Um, but when it talks about what we have when we have a spiritual awakening, it says when a man or woman has a spiritual awakening, the most important meaning of it is that he now, has now become able to do, feel, and believe that which he could not do before on his unaided strength and resources alone. He has been granted a gift which amounts to a new state of consciousness and being. He has been set on a path which tells him he is really going somewhere, that life is not a dead end, not something to be endured or Mastered. In a very real sense, he has been transformed because he has laid hold of a source of strength which in, no way or, in one way or another he had hitherto denied himself. He finds himself in possession of a degree of honesty, tolerance, unselfishness, peace of mind, and love of which he had thought himself quite incapable. What he has received is a free gift, and yet usually, at least in some small part, he has made himself ready to receive it. The 12th step, when I came in, I thought was about helping other alcoholics. And we call that doing a 12-step. We, we take the message to somebody else. But here's what Bill says about that. 
And he says this uh, in the grapevine in 1957, about the same time he was talking about emotional sobriety. He said, is sobriety all, there, all that we are to expect of a spiritual awakening? No. Sobriety is only a bare beginning. It is only the first gift of the first awakening. If more gifts are to be received, our awakening has to go on. As it does go on, we find that bit by bit we can discard the old life, the one that did not work for a new life that can and does work under any conditions whatever. Regardless of worldly success or failure, regardless of pain or joy, regardless of sickness or health or even of death itself, a new life of endless possibilities can be lived if we are willing to continue our awakening through the practice of AA's principles. That came as a result of, of his experience over a period of time. What he found was in the fellowship, everybody was just absolutely overjoyed to get sober. When we first got sober, we had the big book. And that's all we thought we needed. And from 1935 until uh, maybe early 40s, 43, 44, everybody was just so happy they couldn't stand that people were getting sober. But as they got sober, then you got people, alcoholics like us, who weren't drinking, who were trying to run their meetings and everything else. And we were getting into it, and different people have different rules. And some of the meetings, you could get blackballed if they didn't like you. So other meetings had... You know, they didn't know how to handle certain people that were coming in. We had no universal rules. They would just call Bill and say, what are we supposed to do? Or Dr. Bob and say, what are we supposed to do? Uh, and so we learned that we had to develop the traditions. But when I got sober, I was told that the steps, recovery, are the principles by which I learned how to live with myself. The big book is not learning how to live with you. It's learning how to live with myself. It's learning how to get rid of all the impediments in me, the fear, the resentment, everything else. So if you are new and you've got that desire to drink, that's the starting place. What I'm talking about today is what we can learn and what you can look forward to after you have recovered. And it says we have recovered. If we have that spiritual experience, we feel a God consciousness. We're aware there's no desire to drink. I haven't had a desire to drink uh, in all those 33 years, not once. But I have been very, very anxious, nuts, and I had a spiritual awakening. Probably mine, my, I had brain damage when I came into AA, so it took me a while to learn how to read. But I'm going to say somewhere in between my first and second year, I had that experience they talk about where I just felt like I was released. And by the way, that experience happened when I went to a church, thinking I was there to apologize and to make amends to the people of that church for defacing that church. Um, and uh, it's a church my dad still... My 89-year-old dad got married to a, my mom died a few years ago, my 89-year-old dad got married last year to a younger woman, I think she's 79, and um, <laughs> they met at that church, and so the, the church is still doing fine, with whether I was trying to face it or not. I was very angry at God from the time I was a child, and so I go in to make amends to this church, and there was nobody there. There was nobody except me and God, and I realized what I was there for. I had been every morning asking God to keep me from that first drink and thanking God in the evening. At the same time, I was ill at ease with my relationship with God. And my experience is, if you have a father that you need to get straight with, you need to get straight with a real father. You don't just create a whole new father. Somehow you need to get straight. You may not like that earthly father. And if you have a heavenly father that you thought you had a relationship with at one point, you need to go back and deal with that before you can move on to any new understanding. And what happened with me was I, I, I went into there, couldn't find anybody to make amends to. I got down on my knees and started praying, and I realized I was there to forgive God. Now, that may sound arrogant because God, I have since realized, didn't do anything that needed my forgiveness, 
But if you resent somebody, you still forgive them. So I started praying for God and forgiving God. And what happened was it was the first time in my entire life. I didn't have anything to compare it to because I was one scared kid, felt isolated from people and God from, from my early memories. But suddenly I had that experience of one of the most profound spiritual experiences I've had where I felt like the wind was blowing through my body like I didn't weigh anything. And I was just free. All that weight had been taken off of my back. And from that point until now, I've not had those kind of knots in my stomach about drinking or anything else. Nothing that I thought was just going to pick me up and take me and throw me across uh, the way. What I have had is difficulty because I would continue my activities towards other people and towards money and towards uh, my purpose in things. And I've done that in such a way where I did not know the principles and I kept banging my head. And if you don't know how to get along with people, if you don't know how to get along with money, if you don't, I mean, you've got to eat. You know, AA, we just do without the alcohol. OA, you know, you've got to eat. You know, there's, you've got to have some kind of food. So I find that more difficult. And so God gave me diabetes about three months ago. So uh, now, I have to, now I have to eat differently. Or I have on one side is a little fried peach pie, very sexy fried peach pie. <laughs> it's funny how what sexy changes as you get older. And you've been married for 26 years, but, uh, but, uh, but there's this little sexy... And on this side is, a, is an image of me as a um, blind, impotent guy with no feet. So right now, right now the, the, the idea of eating better is kind of winning. Uh, but, but we've got this recovery. And without the recovery, the rest of this is not going to make sense. My group, the guys I got sober with, we do an annual house cleaning once a year. The big book says, and you'll hear our primary purpose is to stay sober and help. That's as a fellowship. But individually, there, there are several mentions of purpose in the big book. The first is the purpose of the big book. It said it's the intent purpose of that book to help me develop a relationship with God because I have no power and God has all power. And that's what that spiritual awakening is about. And, and what that awakening was for me when I had this experience was that, yes, all my life I've been trying to get power. I'm still not going to get power but I'm the son of one who has all power. And no kind and loving father is going to not lend whatever the resources of his kingdom is to his son. And so that means I can have all the power I need. In 2005, Barbara and I uh, uh, dealt with uh, losing three parents uh, in about two months, putting our dog to sleep, and I had terminal cancer, esophageal cancer. And as you can see, I've recovered from esophageal cancer. Um, and... Uh, we are at peace with everything that happened, and God was never more present. But that was 2005, and I was already uh, sober almost 30 years. So we had worked through these steps and learned how to practice the principles. But I had a time from the early days. I've always been somebody who set on fire about Alcoholics Anonymous. I always loved it. When I got here, I loved it. I've always had a job. I was the ashtray guy to start, and then I was the guy who set up the chairs. I, I've always loved AA. But after about 12 years of AA, I got burned out. And I would go to meetings, and you'd say something, and I'd, and I'd pick everything you said apart. I started criticizing everybody in the meetings, not verbally, just to myself. Because of that, I started going to fewer meetings. Because I was going to fewer meetings, people who were asking me to sponsor them stopped asking me to sponsor them. And I was more and more isolated, more and more by myself and decided that I was tired of doing all this stuff for you to help you get sober, and I didn't really get what I wanted out of life. And that's the way I looked at it, because I was two-dimensional. I was 
getting sober and carrying the message to somebody else and thinking that was going to take care of all the details of life. I was 10 years sober uh, and three years married when one of the guys that I sponsored fired me because I was trying to help him with his marriage, and he was embarrassed about the way I was treating Barbara because I was not very kind to Barbara. And, uh, so I, and I didn't know how to be a husband. Being sober does not make us you know, capable of doing many things except not drinking. It allows us the opportunity to live a full life. So here I am between 12 and 15. I'm going to get in touch with myself. I'm going to read some more. I'm going to get in touch with some issues. And by the time I was 15 years sober, I was in a hotel room in Los Angeles trying to find a gun so I could put a bullet in my head. I was suicidal. Once you have experienced the sunlight of the Spirit, where you know there's a God and you feel that kind of joy of connection, you've got to keep working on it to keep that connection. But I didn't do that. Instead, I gently... And it was insidious, just a little bit at a time, got away from my connection with God. So there I was in a hotel room in Los Angeles, and as God, if I'd been in a hotel room in Georgia, it wouldn't have been hard to find a gun. But in Los Angeles, apparently, they've got, they've got all these gun laws, so it's not as easy to find one as, as you think. And um, so instead, I ended up crying out to God. And once more. And I ended up going to some meetings for uh, seven days. What, what happened was I felt it's like, you know, how we have a kind of a voice that just says, go to meetings for a week and see what happens. So the first night I went to a meeting was a guy named Tom Whalen, who's my sponsor's uh, best friend. And he got up and he talked about hitting a snag when he was about 20 years sober and how he had to start over and it took him two or three years to get reconnected. And then there was a guy named Cliff uh, from California who spoke the next night and he said the same thing. Seven nights in a row, old-timers got up with more time than me talking about a snag they hid somewhere between 10 and 25 years of sobriety. I think God organizes things pretty well because I cried out, and that was the answer. So I came back here. My sponsor at that time was Bill Roop, and I hadn't talked to him much in about two years. I was embarrassed to talk to him, and uh, Bill apparently is doing okay. He's got 53 years now, but I was seeing John Holmes all the time. So John, who has doing okay, he's got 51 years now. Um, so I started over with John. I was embarrassed and eventually went back to Bill, apologized to him for not using Now both of them are my mentors, and, uh, and they both know me very well and love me in spite of all my character defects. That's what's great about A. People love us in spite of all those things. And so I started over with John, and he said, you're in a spiritual wasteland. And what I had to do was I had to learn the other principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. The bottom of the triangle is flat, and that's where you're going to be if that's all you'd ever do. Hey, look at me. I've recovered. I got a new car, and I got a new girlfriend. I hear actually at conferences, I go to a lot of conferences, and I speak a lot of them, and people will talk about what a great speaker this person is, and it's a new person who comes along. They have this incredible mess. They killed somebody, and they had to sit in the car with them for a long time, or they, they had four or five deaths, and they contribute to all the, the, the man. And then their recovery, when they tell their part of the recovery is, and now look what I've got. I've got my master's degree, or I've got this, or I've got that. Now I'm a, a this. They don't share anything about how they've learned to become useful and about how their life is useful in all areas. So those people have got some short-lived, hey, look at me. My, if I'm just dry and all I do is can show you my new car and my new job, that's not going to last very long because I'm trying to impress you with what I've got. And what I've got won't help very long. And if a woman who is attracted to me because I tell you what I've got, then she's going to go with somebody who's got more than me the next time, and I'm going to be on my fourth marriage instead of the one I've got. 
Barbara, when I met her, I met her when I was making amends at a uh, Baptist church. I had a lot of churches to make amends to. I was fairly fairly angry at God. And she had never heard. I went there not expecting anything. I I went there out of fear, out of sponsors, why I went there. And and, uh, she had never heard anybody apologize to a Baptist church. And uh, that's how we met. And so we didn't marry until five or six years later. But, you know, I wasn't looking. She was this beautiful, young, blonde girl sitting there, and, and there was something special about her. But I, she, I was not looking for She was a, a good girl and a seminary student, and I was kind of looking for a new dancer who needed some spiritual guidance. <laughs> and, um, but because I didn't force my will... We now have been married 26 years, and Barbara's as an active in Al-Anon as I am in AA, and we have a good life together, and we can share the things that are important, not just, you know, the, the uh, escapades. So here I am. I've reached my bottom. I'm 15 years sober. I don't know what to do. I want to start over. I know all about AA. I've been a, everything from, you know, I've been a GSR, an IGR. I've been a... Uh, a uh, you know, worked at the group level, I've worked on roundups, I've worked on state conference, all this stuff. I've gone to all kinds of, I've gone to three internationals by now, I've gone to, uh, all, to things all over the world. I think we'd spoken in Scotland at one point. And, uh, uh, but I don't know how to get along with people, I don't know how to do anything about my finances or anything else. So it was pointed out to me that the principles by which we recover are the 12 steps. The principles that we learn to live with other people are in the traditions, and the principles wherein we can conduct business are in the concepts. Now, we had five people who raised their hand when I asked how many people had a desire to drink in the last week. How many people in the last week or so have had a problem with finances, a relationship, whether it's uh, at home or at work, uh, knowing exactly what to do about their purpose in life? Uh, How many people have had some problem, some life problem in the last week or two? So we go to AA meetings and we say, what step are you on? Well, if you still have something that impedes you from the sunlight of the Spirit, work the steps. That's what they're there for. I do an annual house cleaning because if I'm going to, my real purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about me, then I need to continually work on me as a vessel. But I also need to know the rules by which we get along with other people. And those are in the traditions and the concepts. And I know that when Bill put those together, they were to save the fellowship. But they also were to help him. He realized that. I mean, he realized he didn't know how to get along with other people. Dr. Bob was a gentle, loving, work, 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 uh, and that's all he did. Bill wrote about the way Bob and Ann Smith lived. If you've studied the founders of this program... Bill was the great communicator, but I would have wanted Bob as a sponsor. Bill was all over the place, bouncing, and, and, and I have enough of that myself. And I found that most of us in AA are somewhere between Bill and Bob. There are very few people that are as solid as a rock like Bob is, and most of them aren't, aren't as brilliant as, as Bill, but we don't have his problems either because he was, never, never, he was always a little bit off balance. Uh, but he communicated so well uh, about where he was. So he wrote this, and this is why we call this emotional sobriety. He wrote this article for the grapevine, and he wrote it in, this was in the 50s. He says, 
And this is just the first two paragraphs. I think that many oldsters who have put our AA booze cure to severe but successful tests still find they often lack emotional sobriety. Perhaps they will be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the develop development of much more real maturity and balance, which is to say humility, in our relations with ourselves, with our fellows, and with God. Those adolescent urges that so many of us have for top approval, perfect security and perfect romance, urges quite appropriate to age 17 prove to be an impossible way of life when we are at age 47 and 57. And he wasn't writing this like saying that everything was covered in the big book. He was saying it wasn't covered in the big book. So if we have that 12th step and we want to practice these principles in all our affairs, we need to know what the principles are. So what I'm going to share with you is what I have learned about these traditions um, and how I can use them in my regular everyday life so that I don't have to keep button heads with everybody so I can get along with other people. Now, there's nobody in Alcoholics and I know of that, Alcoholics Anonymous that I know of that does a lot of work who doesn't have somebody that doesn't like them. I'm not talking about we get everybody to like us. I'm talking about I'm at peace and know that I did the best, even if somebody, so I don't care whether somebody likes me. By the way, the fact that God has all power has, has, a, uh, has a downside and a plus side. If God has all power, that means I have no power. It means I have to behave. Every promise in the big book that is promised says if I do what God asks me. It doesn't say if I go to meetings and don't drink. It says if I, I believe God wants us to do that. Don't, don't get me wrong. But he wants us to do a lot more. It says... We had a new employer to the extent that we kept close to him and performed his work well. He provided what we needed. Later on in the book, it says, follow the dictates of a higher power, which, by the way, are not suggestions. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world regardless of your present circumstances, whether you have cancer or whether you have Katrina. They, we spoke at the first AA conference down in New Orleans after Katrina, and you could not believe they didn't even know if they'd be, have a turnout. They couldn't have it in a hotel because the hotels were demolished. They had it in a school gymnasium, and they had the biggest turnout they've ever had. And it was everybody celebrating. Uh, and, and the spirit, the sunlight of the spirit was there. So here are, here are the traditions and what they mean to me. Um, if you don't know the traditions, read them. I'm not going to read through every one. But the first tradition, which is the basis for all our traditions... Um, and, and by the way, when I say principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've seen things that are kind of clever where you have the 12 steps and then next to them are these principles. I don't think the program is that complicated. There are a few principles. The principle is that God has all power, and for us to access that power, we have to become like children and follow whatever God wants us to do. And I dropped something just a minute ago. I thought... The, the upside of that is if God has all power, you have no power also, which means nobody in this room can ruin my life so I don't have to resent you or, or fear you. We spend all our time fearing and resenting all these people that don't have the power to hurt us because God has all power. My spiritual awakening increasingly is that simple. God has all power, but I'm one of his children, and he loves me. That's my spiritual awakening. It's that simple. And doesn't, you can practice that in any religion or any language. So, uh, and, it, and it frees me because I'm the kind where I would have, you know, 2,000 attaboys and one person who said something negative. I just spoke at Founders Day. There are 20,000 people there. And if any of you have heard my story, I mistakenly picked up someone who um, uh, 
I thought was a beautiful redhead, and it turns out it was a beautiful redhead, just had the wrong kind of equipment, which I didn't recognize until I got home. And so um, um, this is why we need a sponsor. And so, um, uh, so I tell that story, and if I don't tell that story, all the spiritual stuff that's happened it doesn't make any difference. If I go someplace and I don't tell that story, they say, you didn't tell the Erica story. You know how we are. I mean, so, so uh, I tell that story, and everybody has fun, and they realize how clueless I was, and it wasn't about anybody else, and I get a little note. The one note, there's always a criticism, the one note was that I might, I might not really be looking into myself, you know, and it was the, the note indicated that I might be gay, but I didn't know it. I have plenty of gay friends, and they know they're gay. I know I'm not, and so, but somebody had to correct me. You know how it is. We always have to kind of be helpful and correct somebody. So, um, um, but I appreciated the note. And the girl referred me to a book, which she said would help enlighten me, and I found out later she wrote the book. So, so here are the traditions. The first one is unity. I mean, it's, it's about um, our common welfare comes first. We before me. And this is a powerful, powerful basis. These principles that we have, God has all power, but we need to love each other as his children, and we need to put our welfare as a family first. And if we do that, we'll work with each other instead of trying to advance ourselves, and things will be okay. It's that simple. But unity is the basis for everything in getting along with people. We before me. I am not good at relationships. I've only been married once. It's to Barbara. Before that, I was, I was engaged six times. I'm really into movies, and each one of them looked like a different movie star. And that's why I picked most of them. And um, uh, I got within three weeks of one marriage. Well, actually, I got closer to coming down from Lake Tahoe to Reno one time, but we were in a convertible, and the air... Uh, gave us a little enlightenment. We decided to postpone that wedding. But I've been engaged six times, but nobody would ever marry me. So I'm not good at relationships. I told you I had a guy fire me because of the way I was treating Barbara. But we have in our relationship, after I started to learn these and started to get back into them, if we disagree, and we do, and we argue and we, we disagree, if we disagree, we will pray, turn it over to God, and let go of it because we is more important than me, her getting her way or me getting my way. That's a simple thing. But we do that now call it synonymous when we have a group conscious meeting. We, t- we are seeking God's will in our midst. We're not, we have rules that prevent people from butting heads too much or a, an angry minority getting their way when we have, when, in, in, our, in our traditions and even in Robert's Rules of Order it's set up that way. It happens sometimes, but that's what this is for. My best friend was a guy named Keith Lewis. And when Keith died, we were trying to set up a memorial. And he had had three sponsors, Tom Ivester, Sandy Beach, and John Holmes. So I called all three. I got them all on one date when they can do it. But it took me a couple of weeks. I called Tom back, and I said, okay, I got the date that you wanted. We're going to do it down in Tampa, etc. Sandy's arranged for a church. And uh, uh, he said, oh, darn. He said, you know, that Sunday, as it turns out, I'm supposed to have brain surgery that Monday. He had an an aneurysm up here. He said, I'm supposed to have brain surgery on that Monday. And I said, well, I said, well, you know, obviously we're going to need to move this because it's important for you to be there. And he said, I'll call you right back. So he called me back uh, about an hour later, and he said, okay, I got him to move my brain surgery. (laughs) 
he got, Tom got them to move his brain surgery, which is wasn't getting the tooth extracted. I mean, this is important. So that he could be there for what he calls the greater good. That's the way Tom is. That's why Tom has 53 years. He's tireless. He goes every place. And he spends all his time trying to be useful to others. And he's got a good marriage. Um, that kind of unity is what makes us um, capable of being a member. I learned that in the Boy Scouts. I learned that when I was on active duty. If you're in combat, you need unity. You don't, there's not any superstars. Uh, I learned that in sports. I was a quarterback, but the quarterback doesn't do very well if you uh, don't have people blocking and somebody's not downfield to catch the ball. I mean, unity is more important than one person. And, uh, and that's the basis for all of these. Now, how can I put our welfare first when my basic instinct is to take care of me? Only one way. And that is, if I have had a spiritual awakening, and I know that God has all power, and I believe that God loves me. That's the second tradition. There is only one power, and we're not it. For our group purpose, there's but one ultimate authority. Loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. But the way that works is, I can only give my family, my workplace, the people I play tennis with, whatever I'm doing, I can only put them first and not have to be the one who dominates everything and the one who controls everything and, and get out of the way. If I believe that there is a God who has a greater purpose who can explain to me through all the ways he reaches me what to do. I'm praying for God's will. And all on the steps, I'm asking for God's will. In the 11th step, I'm asking for God's will. I'm not asking for my will. And now, as a group, we're seeking God's will. I mean, that's this whole thing. We're trying to find God and do what God wants, and then he'll take care of us and give us provision and purpose and power. And that's what we're looking for is the power to deal with all kinds of difficult situations. But that comes when I am part of, like I am in AA. Now, I learned this in AA first because if I'm not willing to go work with a new alcoholic, I don't stay sober. But because I go to work with a new alcoholic, even though I don't have anything to give him except, you know, help him throw up in the beginning, that's all I had really was I could help the guy throw up and get him to a meeting. And there were other people that would talk to him because I was a little confused. But that helped me stay sober. That helped him stay sober. And we all are in this. Now, we see how it works in AA. And we just are crazy. If it works in AA, why doesn't it work someplace else? It works in all areas of our life. And that's what the 12th step tells us to do, even in the big books, practice these, these principles in all our affairs. And uh, uh, so in a group conscience and, and uh, uh, in everything I do, there is a power outside of me. Now, I forget that sometimes. I forget that sometimes. Um, the third tradition is acceptance without judgment. This is there's only, the only requirement for membership is to start to stop drinking. What that means in here is we don't judge somebody because of their color, because of their gender, because of their... Uh, it, or, or we do sometimes because you're just a flaming jerk. Uh, we, you know, we, we, we think that we should get people that are a better breed of alcoholics. Sometimes people complain about the behavior of alcoholics who are NAA, but we wouldn't be NAA if we weren't self-centered, and that's the center of our disease. And so we have people that come in and they don't instantly get unself-centered, and we seem to be irritated with them. But they just got our disease. That means they belong here if they're self-centered. And uh, so we have, but, but what this is about is accepting without judgment. That's unconditional love. 
If I expect God to accept me without judgment, because I certainly didn't deserve to have the desire for a drink taken away and to be free of uh, desire for all this time. I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve most of what I get. I don't deserve to have them last weekend put me in front of a whole bunch of people and let me talk because I'm not any wizard. I'm, I'm good at communicating, but that's about it. I mean, I'm no better. I'm active, but I'm no better member than anybody else I know who's active. I just can sometimes communicate a little bit better. I got to be on the motorcade in the lead car that led 5,000 motorcycles over to Dr. Bob's gravesite on Sunday, and I got to see that, that beautiful view, and behind them were another few thousand cars, and we all ended up at the gravesite where we were honoring Dr. Bob and Annie Smith for what they did for us, for living a kind of lives. If they hadn't been there, if, if, then Bill would have gone off and, and, and crashed, but they were the glue that kept AA together in the very beginning. And I got to be on the lead car. Now, why... I get all kinds of things. That I, here's what I've learned. I'm God's child, so if he wants to give it to me, I appreciate it. All I think God wants from us is gratitude. If I'm grateful for what he gives me today, he'll give me more. I was going through a spiritual awakening. I was at a place in Gethsemane where we did this annual retreat. If I had resentments towards the Baptists, I really had resentments towards the Catholics. And uh, uh, here's this Catholic priest up there who I didn't really, you know, uh, I'd been brought up, you know, Protestant, so, and he's up there and he said, you boys know what God's will is, don't you? And none of us ventured to guess, and he said, God's will is to do the best you can right now, right this minute, with what you've got, to use what you've got to be useful to others. If what you've got is some quiet time, pray for somebody else. If what you've got, if you're a brother, be a good brother. If your father, be a good father. If your son, be a good son. If you're a member of AA, be the very best member you can be. If you have a job you absolutely love, Treat people honorably through that job. Serve them until God gives you something else to do. If you have a job you absolutely hate, do that job honorably and serve others and do it lovingly until God gives you some other job. He said God gives to us according to our gratitude. Not even according to our talents, but according to our gratitude. And he said he knows us as his children better than we know ours, but if you guys had two seven-year-old boys and one of them took a red, and gave both of them red wagons, and one of them took the wagon around the neighborhood and spread joy to the other kids and let them play with it. And the other kid took the red wagon and kicked it aside and said, I want a scooter. Who would you give more to? Now, I had always been the guy who kicked the wagon aside because I wanted a scooter. I was an expert on cocktail napkins writing down, I want this girl, which means I want that car to get that job. I'd always writing my, I did my goal seeking on cocktail napkins. And that's, that's, I'd always been that guy, even after I got sober. But what he's saying is, use what I've got right now. Use my cancer. I'm, I'm the, the, nobody hardly recovers from esophageal cancer, and I'm sponsoring two guys that are esophageal cancer survivors. There's a lot more of it in AA because we dry heave so long that we create that condition that causes esophageal cancer. Most people die of it. But I'm able to use that. And I mentioned that at Founders Day. They said they've already had over 50 emails that went into the intergroup at Akron asking how to get in touch with me to talk to me about this cancer. That gives me some purpose. I didn't get the cancer on purpose so I could have that purpose because I'd just soon not go through the whole two-year feeding tube, all that kind of stuff. But I have a purpose. It gives me something I can use. There's nothing I can't use in my life. Acceptance without judgment. Now, here's the problem. We tend to gossip in AA, and we tend to judge in AA. 
And that means if I'm going to do it in AA, I'm going to do it at the workplace. I'm going to do it at other places. We do it because we want to make ourselves feel better than the person we're talking about. And then sometimes it's just because I'm angry and I'm not getting my way. My best friend, Keith Lewis, and I were going out to speak in Arizona, and we were, I planned this road trip, and we were going to enjoy it and have this great time together. And Keith calls me at the last minute and says, uh, I'm not going to go. I don't, I don't do those things. I, I can't go on a, a trip like that. Blah, blah, blah. And it just really, after all this planning, I got really angry. So he and I were the kind of friends that talked on the phone six, seven times a day. We were good friends, loving friends. He was my prayer partner. So these are the actual two pages of notes I made on my computer to talk to him about. It says, talk with Keith. Number one, concern. You notice when we're concerned about other people, it's because they're not doing what we want them to do? It says, <clears throat> recently he's been irritable, discontent. Seemed angry at me, angry at a lot of things and people in the world. When we talked about the trip, let me know there would only be one way to do it. His way. Go to whatever you had planned at your pace and I could go along. No discussion or flexibility. I mean, there's two pages of my notes so I can have a discussion with my best friend about how he screwed up and I'm not. Had I used these instead of praying, I would have lost a friend. And my friend, Keith Lewis, I was in the room with him when he made his exit. He had Lou Gehrig's disease, and we didn't know that he had frontal lobe dementia. Because what I thought was, you know, this is not like my... I prayed about it, and I said, this is not like my friend Keith. Keith doesn't act like this, and he didn't act like that. He had frontal lobe dementia, and within a year he was uh, a dad of Lou Gehrig's disease. And I was in the room with him, holding his hand, when he made his exit. And his wife was there. And there was a spirit of joy that filled that room that was so immense that when his body stopped breathing, his wife and I were almost laughing out loud in joy. That presence was in that room for an hour, before and after his body stopped breathing, and then it kind of just slowly left the room. The big book says we will lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. And it didn't say the hereafter because there is no hereafter. And we don't get any need to get into religion, but, but what that leads me to believe is I'm a spiritual being having a human experience, not the other way around. But the part of me that I have discovered when I have a spiritual awakening is that spiritual being in me awakens. And now when I go to a meeting, I see people and they talk and they may have unusual ways of doing things. They may even be irritable, but it's because they're troubled. And if I see them through God's eyes, if God lends me his eyesight, then I go to a meeting and I love those people regardless of where they are. I can tell what spiritual condition I am by the way I look at people in AA meetings. If I'm picking apart at them and I'm competitive or I'm angry, that's me. If I'm looking at them in a loving way, then I'm attuned to God. And that's a, that's a warning, that's an indicator for me. It's just like taking the glucose. You, you, I can tell where my spiritual condition is. The fourth tradition is about each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups of RA as a whole. In this, independence has its limits. The opposite of humility is defiance. We have trouble describing humility, but the opposite of humility is defiance. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And yet our whole program is so that somebody will tell me what to do. 
I'm asking God to tell me what to do, but nobody's going to tell me what to do. Well, nobody's going to tell me what to do, even God, if I'm not listening and seeking God's will. So I have to come to the point where I believe that whatever happens when I put myself in God's hands is better than anything I could do. Almost verbatim it says that in the book. So this is, this is about defiance versus humility. At Founders Day, ten years ago, I did a uh, film. And I was doing the research in 1999, going around and meet with all these people, and I said, I'm doing this film, and I was telling them, we're going to introduce it at Founders Day. And, uh, and, and I thought they'd all say, oh, you know, AA is such a wonderful organization, and you do so much good for so many people. And then instead they said, you know, what happens, we leave town during that because all the bikers come in, they make a lot of noise till 3 or 4 in the morning, and they trash the place. Our behavior and how we behave. Now, since then, they've kind of cleaned up their act, and they talked to a lot of the bikers. The bike, there's nothing wrong with the, all the noise we make and going, but at night, trash, all those kind of things, that was a big thing. Every announcement there was about that. So what we do makes a difference. Um, there was a, uh, we got a, a bill one time from a hotel in Utah. This is back when I had, before the cancer, I, I actually had enough money that I didn't even, I, I just, didn't question bills, I just paid it, but I got this American Express bill and it had $5,000 from a hotel in Utah. And I would have remembered spending $5,000, I think, and I called the hotel and they were a management company for a hotel where we had done a roundup. And they said, uh, you were here for this roundup? And I said, yeah. I said, my wife and I spoke. They said, well, the roundup didn't pay its bills and so we're just charging all of you that put your credit card down each $5,000 for the $25,000 sale. I said, well, no, 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 because they were charging all the speakers. And I said, no, no. I said, I was a speaker. I'm not, I'm, that's, I'm not part of that organization. You're, oh, you're not part of AA? See, they don't know the difference. And so I tried to explain this in some way, and I realized he doesn't know the difference. So I got off the phone and called the person who I knew was part of this, and I said, you need to pay this. And they did pay it, and it got straightened out. But people don't know the difference. The fifth tradition is about purpose. Uh, it says each group ought to, be, uh, uh, ought to have a, 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 one primary purpose. But it's also about, if that's true for the group, it's true for me. What is my purpose in anything I do? When Barbara and I got married, my purpose was for her to look good, be this good-looking blonde, make me feel good, I'd be her provider, I'd be the guy, and da-da-da. Now, I'm, we didn't have that discussion before you know, any pastor uh, and he said, oh, that's, yeah, that's a very spiritual thing. And um, we didn't have that discussion. And so for that reason, after we got married, she thought, well, the first time we had an argument, she thought we were getting divorced. I come from a family where we knock each other down all the time. Her family, they all just, yeah, it's okay with me. And so, um, you know, because um, they don't want to offend anybody. And so uh, we have our first argument, and she calls a friend because she says that we're, we're getting divorced. You know, I didn't, didn't even bother me. And uh, uh, so, but what is my purpose? Our purpose in our relationship now, as we have discussed, is to create a safe harbor from all those things that happen out in life. So that when I've got cancer, she's there with me. And when she has a car accident, I'm there for her. And when her parents die, I'm there for her. And that when I'm not doing well in everything, including AA, I've got a safe place to go back to. So the biggest thing that we have is a partnership where we have safe harbor, and the second thing that she and I do for each other is try to hold each other accountable so that we don't become dishonest and that we become stay purposeful because she has the same mission as me. We want to be useful to other people. 
Now, you would have thought many years ago it would have been more of the physical, it would have been more of, you know, we like to play tennis, we love movies, you know, that's not it. There's something spiritual that's there, and that's why we're still married. I know plenty of people who had other purposes, didn't define them. And if I don't have a purpose, by the way, I won't achieve that purpose. As I gain humility and find out what I'm good at, there are certain things I can do very well. But other things I don't do very well at all. I talk about finances, and I, my idea of finances is, let's spend that money. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm okay in the budget when we're in the middle of a production. Uh, I write and produce. But once I get the money, it's like, let's spend the money. And I've always, when I made lots of money, spent money, like I was always going to make that much money. And nobody who is a writer, actor, anybody that does any kind of work like I do, always makes that kind of money. So we always get in trouble. You hear of always, you know, even people who are superstars being broke. That's because we spend all the money when we get it. So when I was 25 years sober, I finally got tired of this, and my, one of my best friends, who's also an attorney and a very conservative guy, agreed to be my business manager. So I haven't made a lot of money since then because of the cancer, but, but it looks like this next year is going to turn around and we're going to do a little better, and I will have somebody there to help manage me. So I need to know what my purpose is, and I need to know what other people do uh, uh, as well. And to, to know my purpose, I need to know who I am. I need to know that I'm an AA member, a husband, a writer, a brother, a son, an uncle, a friend to a number of people. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I'm a cancer survivor. There are many things that I am where I can be useful to others, but there are many things I'm not where I really need to send somebody to somebody else. I used to sponsor a couple of guys who had some abuse problems. And I said, well, just forgive the person. I don't know anything about abuse because I never was abused. So then, now when I sponsor people, I sponsor them within the realm of my experience. If I don't have it, I try to find somebody for them. We're not supposed to be experts. We're supposed to be like big brothers, guides, helping somebody to find the person who has the answers. We send them to an attorney for legal advice, although I've heard plenty of it given at AA meetings. The sixth tradition is, um, um, you know, we ought never endorse finance, lend the A name. What that's really about is I have more than enough to do without minding other people's business. How many people spend time straightening other people out on things that really neither one of you can do anything about? How many people have had discussions where you are angry and you want to make a point to somebody about politics, finances, abortion, Iraq? How many people have had any discussion like that in the last year or two. We all do it. But how many people have won that argument? So you're wasting time. I mean, I'm wasting time that I could be doing something useful. Um, the seventh tradition, each group ought to, this is fully self-supporting, each group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. This is freedom from bondage. How can I ask God to do what I'm supposed to do and go do it if I have to work just to make my payments. And I used to do this. The more money I got, go out and buy a house that cost a million and a half dollars, buy three cars, buy whatever. Now I'm working to make the payments on this. Instead of having economic freedom where the money's set aside but living modestly so I can go do what God wants me to do. That's the difference in being useful and say, hey, ain't I grand? And I know people that have gone broke six times in this program because every time they get money, they show everybody how much money they have. Then they go broke. And what are they doing for other people? But do you know the people who are most loved in this program are the people who are continually doing things for other people, tirelessly doing things for other people. During his lifetime, 15 years sober, Dr. Bob 
treated over 5,000 alcoholics, helped them dry out in the hospital and get sober. 5,000 in 15 years. Through his writing, Bill did even more than that. Different ways for both of them. What if Bill hadn't been driven to continue writing and continue putting down on paper our program? What if Bob hadn't continued to help those alcoholics to give Bill a model to write after? We wouldn't be here. Freedom from bondage. So this is real simple. The best explanation of how to live uh, with freedom from bondage is from my sponsor, John Holmes, who says he's never made as much money in one year as I did in some of the years I've had. But what he does, he said, I always live on less than I make. So if you're looking for some guru or something, if you live on less than you make, set some aside each year, no matter how much you make, you'll never be in debt. That's real simple, but I don't know how many people can't get that, but that's the simplest way to do it. Eighth tradition is... um, this should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. The, the principle behind this is um, that I do my job, but when do I need help? Because I would have been, and we do this at AE meetings, where we're giving people legal advice, we're giving people advice about medicine, we're giving people, you know, we're, giving, we're their spiritual advisor, we're doing all these things. You know, but I have a sponsor, I have somebody who's a service sponsor, because that's a, a separate area kind of unto itself. I have... Uh, I have people that um, I have, I had almost no doctors when I got to A. Now I have a cardiologist, I have a gastroenterologist, I have a thoracic surgeon, I have an ear doctor, I have an ENT, I'm having an MRI because I've got some vertical problems. Uh, I have all these doctors, I have an attorney, I have a business manager, I have all these people because they do all that stuff better than I do. And that's the miracle of it. If I allow them to do that better than I do, then we all need each other. It's not like me prove anything by being independent and continuing to do things unwisely. Um, there was a, uh, a guy who was a very good cartoonist, and he um, got a job and did these cartoons. And he didn't like the way the company was going, so he quit. Well, he had signed a paper that said whatever he created belonged to them. So he said, I'll show them, you know, that kind of spirit we have. And he started his own company. And not only did he not show them, but all his money went away because he bankrupted the company because he didn't know how to manage the business. So then he asked his brother, Roy Disney, who was a very good business manager, to manage the company. And Roy and Walt put together the company, we know as the Walt Disney Company, on a $500 loan. Roy made that happen based on Walt's talent, but they needed each other. So, you know, there are times when I need help. That's humility, is knowing my limitations. But it's also knowing what I'm good at. And the guys that I do annual house cleanings with, we don't simply sit down and say, what have I done this year? I mean, yeah, you got any fear or resentment, but after you've been here for a while, it's more of becoming more efficient and, and learning how to use your talents to be useful to other people. The ninth tradition is... Um, we ought never be organized, which we do pretty well on. Um, <laughs> but in my own life, this is um, keep it simple, let go and let God. 
and seek wise counsel because what I'm really doing here is I know that God has all power. I don't have to organize everything. And I can, uh, uh, and I seek wise counsel. I seek wise advice. The culmination of this is in what saved my life just a few years ago. When I had, was told I had esophageal cancer, we had just lost three out of four of our parents within a two-month period. We had put our dog to sleep. We weren't able to have children. Our dog was an 18-year-old uh, elk hound named uh, uh, Booger Bear who had gone to maybe two or 300 conferences with us all over the United States. Like our child, we sat there crying. We thought we'd never cry that much and, and may not. We were saying, well, I don't think we'll cry that much at each other's funeral. But dogs don't argue with you. And so, um, so, we, so, we, so we put our dog to sleep and then our parents and then we go to, to Toronto, came back. I go and get a, a, a physical uh, because I was having this inner ear problem. They didn't get to the inner ear because they found I had esophageal cancer. Uh, esophageal cancer is 99.8% fatal, and there aren't that many people who have it. So it means just a handful of people survive it each year. So I found the one place that was a center of excellence that had some, uh, had devised this procedure where they didn't just pull up your uh, stomach. They cut out part two-thirds of your stomach, make a tube out of it. They uh, take all of your esophagus and everything in your chest out that's not beaten, and then create this whole new digestive system, and they've had some good success with it because it didn't leak. A lot of people who have this done the old way couldn't digest food and would have leakage, and they get peritonitis or just a lot of problems associated with it. And the biggest thing is that you can't gain weight. So apparently I've overcome that obstacle. <laughs> and um, so I find the place that I'm going to go, and it's a guy named Tom Demeester out at the University of Southern California. And I got phone calls in to Lynn Wilder and to Clancy and to all these people out there. And they're helping me because they both sponsor people that are on the board of regents at this university. And, and uh, um, uh, you know, we live powerful lives after we get sober. And so uh, I'm, I'm out there and I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to go. And they call me back and say, we can't take you because we don't have, we can't take your insurance. And I was speaking Saturday night in Key West and I'd been praying and suddenly... I'm going to die because I don't have the right kind of insurance. And if you have encountered the sunlight of the Spirit and felt warm and felt like you're encompassed in God, and suddenly you feel like God's abandoned you, there is nothing darker. It's different than before you didn't know the sunlight. Now there's this great darkness. And for two days I'd start to pray and I'd be so angry I couldn't talk. And a friend down there, and I'm supposed to speak on Saturday night, and these people are coming there having a good time thinking I'm going to, you know, and I'm going to get up and tell them, you know, life stinks and I'm dying and there's no God which is a different kind of talk for Saturday night. And so, um, uh, so I'm, I'm, a friend of mine said, say whatever prayer that will reconnect you with God, what can you remember from your youth? And I had re- memorized the 23rd Psalm uh, to recite to the PTA. And so I, 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 I start saying the 23rd Psalm over and over, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I go through that and suddenly... Right before I got up there, I remembered my original sponsor, a guy named Jack Sullivan, an old railroad man who had everybody smoked when I got to AA in Louisville. If he didn't know how to smoke, he had to learn how to smoke. And so uh, Jack had, like everybody else, had gotten a little lung cancer and had spread to his brain. He had six malignant brain tumors. They couldn't operate, really couldn't operate. And I'm talking to him the day he just found this out. I said, Jack, you, and when it sinks into me what he's saying, I said, you don't, you don't sound scared. And he said, if God has been this good to me here, just imagine what he's got waiting for me on the other side. I had been praying for God to help me with my will because I figured out where I was supposed to go and what I was supposed to do. And I didn't think God would take me after he'd just taken three out of four parents and our dog and leave Barbara. 
But I'm trying to second-guess what God wants. So I just said, okay, God, if you want to take me to paradise, I'm ready. And once you relax and accept that, you know, what's, you know, it's like Alfred e. Newman. What? Be worried. There's no real problem if you are accepting the fact that going to paradise is the least, of, is the, you know, biggest of your problems. So I just relaxed. And on Monday when I came back, I got a phone call from this people out in California, and I thought they were going to say, oh, we've, because I always believe in miracles, and they, they said, we're going to take it. They said, we still can't take you, but our chief surgeon, the chief of surgery here, just went to a hospital up in Rochester, New York. And why don't you call him and see if he can get you in up there? So I call up there. Within an hour, I can't even get my primary care provider to call me back here, but within an hour, the chief of surgery of, of uh, Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York, calls me back. Listens to me. We send him the film and stuff. He calls me back and said, okay. Come on up. We don't care about the insurance. I want to teach these people this process. You're a good uh, uh, candidate for this, uh, and so come on up. So now we head up to this hospital. We're going to Rochester, New York. My family's an old southern family. I'm named for my great-grandfather, who was a three-star general under Robert E. Lee at Gettysburg. If you're going to make your exit, we don't really want to make it at Rochester, New York. <laughs> And we didn't know anybody in Rochester, New York. But if you're an AA, you always know somebody. Because somebody had called ahead because we had been active. You don't get these benefits, by the way, if you're just hanging out, coming late, leaving early, and just barely on the edge. You get them by being in the middle of this. So we get up there, and we suddenly had 30 new best friends who were A and Al-Anon. They took us to it. They were there when we got... They were there when we got to the hotel... And we suddenly had a new AA home group they took us to that night and an Alamon home group, and they were doing barber's laundry and everything else. The next day, we actually go to the hospital. We walk in. We check in with God to make sure that we're not, you know, I'm always, there's always some doubt that this could be, you know, God could mess this up. I walk in. We go to the chapel, and there on a wall, 30 feet deep, in letters that are a foot and a half deep in gold, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Then we walked out into the lobby, where we see that this is Strong Memorial Hospital, endowed by the family of Dr. Leonard Strong, who was Bill Wilson's brother-in-law, who helped start the Alcoholic Foundation, without whom I wouldn't have been here the first time. See, God's really a good organizer if you let him do the, take care of the details. That's the essence of our principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is not... Um, some complicated thing. There is one God, and that God loves me. I'm a child of God. And if I will learn through the wisdom of other people and letting other people see me how to do what God asks me in all areas, my life will be connected with other people because I will be useful to them and they will be useful to me and we'll be family. That's what we love about AA. And yet sometimes we butt our heads when we go outside of here. Tenth tradition... We have no opinion on outside issues since the aim ought not to be drawn into public controversy. What that's really about is uh, ev the first thing people seem to get back when they get to AA is their opinions. <laughs> they may not have a house. They may be living in a room with a hot plate, but they have opinions. Well, opinions don't really mean anything. They don't. I mean, you know, I have opinions, but they don't really mean anything. I mean, experience means something. There are no... Teachers and Alcoholics Anonymous, everything I'm sharing with you up here is what I've experienced. 
And it may be different than what you experienced, but I'll bet you in principle it will be similar to what I experienced. And that's the great thing about AA. We don't have somebody gets up. And we do have people get up and say, this is what the big book means. That's not AA. That's somebody telling you what the big book means. That's not AA. That, that was never around even when I came into AA. Joe and Charlie started that. They did a good job of it because they were sharing their experience. But then a bunch of offshoots now. You know how religion, I think religion in the first place was, we had all these people that were just running around and said, there's a God, and I can walk now, and I can see now. And that's the way we are in AA. But then at some point in religion, people started explaining that and setting rules and parameters to how that could have happened. And we get denominations, and then everybody's intolerant of each other. If we do much of that in AA, we'll destroy ourselves too because we can't get up and one person say, this means this and this means that. you got a big book, read it. If you're blind, get somebody to read it to you. If you can't read, learn how to read because somebody will teach you how to read. There's a way to find out what it says in the big book and the 12 and 12 for yourself and experience it yourself. That's what it's about. So opinions get me off, off purpose and I have to watch. And for that reason, on the back of my vehicles, I don't have political stickers even though I've been very active in, in politics because I believe in that, but I don't have po political stickers. I don't care. The only thing I... This is, says I'm a Vietnam veteran. It's a state of fact, and it helps me because quite often another veteran will see this, and I can be of use to them. But I don't carry a lot of stuff around trying to... I'm even careful about sports teams among newcomers because anything you see... You don't know what's going to set somebody off. If you've been around here for a while, you're fair game. But I'm talking about new people, you know, so opinions can get us off purpose. The last two traditions, which are probably the most misunderstood of all the traditions, in the 11th tradition, it's talking about our, our public relations policies based on attraction rather than promotion, da, da, da. On page 83 of the big book, it says our behavior will show them more than our words. I was in a... Uh, cell phone store a few years ago before they had all these bundles where you paid for every minute, explaining to them that the cell phone this company had sold me didn't work because of that. It dropped calls all the time, and so I had to pay for 10 or 12 calls instead of the one call. So what I would like is my bill adjusted so I didn't pay for all those calls and a new cell phone because this one didn't work. And the woman that I was with um, and were talking to didn't seem to understand. And at my worst, I think that the reason if I explain something and I'm articulate, and you don't understand it's because you're hard of hearing. So I increase the volume. So I increase the volume. Now, you would think that'd be the end of that. What I really needed to do was ask for the manager, not get into an argument with somebody who didn't have the power to give me a new phone or anything, because they're trained to do that, and I know better. And when I finally got the manager, the manager gave me a new cell phone and deducted the bill. But I had a brand new pigeon whose wife didn't want him to be in AA because she was doing a little drink of her own at that time, and she was judging me as a sponsor in AA and trying to find you know, fault with us. So I have lunch with this guy two weeks later, and he said, by the way, were you in a cell phone store recently? I said, uh, yes. And he said, well, my wife works there, and she said that you made the lady uh, that you were dealing with cry. Well, first of all, I didn't make her cry, but she wasn't happy with me. And then now I've got to go make amends because I'm messing up. What I learned from that is there is nothing, no matter where I am, if I'm in front of a massage parlor and I've got a honk if you love Bill W. thing on there, um, you know, there is nothing I can do that I, should, my, my, that I should not think, what if a newcomer was watching me right now? Could I explain this as something that's good to do? What if God was watching me? What if my sponsor was watching me? 
There is no time when I'm off. Now, I can relax. I can have all the fun I want. But if it's self-centered behavior, I'm going to pay a price for that. I may, it may cut me off from being able to be useful to somebody. And uh, so actions speak louder than hype. It's, people are attracted to us because of the way we live. In the last, because I live out near Douglasville, from the central office, and I've been on the answering service the whole time I've been sober, I get maybe a handful of calls a year, and most of them are from people that want to go to a meeting. But in the last year, I got 11 wet drunks from my gastroenterologist who says that I have one of the most positive attitudes he's ever seen among somebody who recovered from this cancer. He wanted to know why, so I explained to him about Alcoholics Anonymous because I don't have a positive attitude. I'm actually fairly cynical, but I have faith in God, which is a pretty positive attitude. It means that God has all power. He can do whatever. That's, a, that's better than me thinking I can help actuate something. And so uh, because he saw the way I carried myself through this illness, he sent me 11 wet drunks in the last two years. That's an opportunity to be useful. We attract people that way. In the um, 70s, there was a group of people who came out, and by the way, there's a a movement afoot right now uh, started by a guy who's not anything in and of himself, but he was the son of a famous journalist who wrote a book that says all about he has come out. He's now called synonymous. He's asking everybody to come out. They've actually started a movement called uh, Voices of Recovery, I think, where if you're a celebrity, come out and tell people so we can get rid of the stigma. There is no stigma. Unless you've got a highly secure, you know, a, a top secret job where they, they don't want somebody who could be threatened by getting them drunk. You know, I don't know of any place anymore, any profession that you could be part of where there's much of a stigma for alcoholism uh, because everybody knows that it's a disease. Um, they may misunderstand it, but there's not the kind of stigma. But these guys, what behind this is, this guy's gotten a congressional recognition and a presidential recognition. He's got 11-year sobriety. Why don't they give that to Tom Ivester? Because Tom Ivester's not breaking traditions and taking credit for it. That's what this is about. The 12th tradition is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personality. What that means is we give credit where credit's due. The credit goes to God, not to us. I am sober because God arranged for me to pick up when I called for a woman named Helen to be working at that office so she could answer the phone and send a guy named Ed to me. And Ed sat down, and I turned my complete life over to Ed. And Ed was not, he was kind of a mess himself, but he was better than I was. And I turned my complete self over to him. And from that day until now, I haven't had a desire for a drink. But what about what happened at the hospital? I can list hundreds and hundreds of what would be normally called miracles that have happened to me. Um, uh, and... Uh, and they've happened because God has all this power. And God loved me, and when I said, God help me, he did. And that's as simple as this thing is. So those are the traditions, but they give us some guideposts to go by. I'm only going to mention a couple things before I close on the, on the uh, concepts. And the concepts are, we have things in here like right of decision, uh, right of appeal, right of participation. Um, right of decision is this. If you are the coffee person for the group and you've been picked to be the coffee person and you go out and get Folgers and somebody else wanted Starbucks, tough, let them be the coffee person. When somebody has the right of decision, they have the right of decision. Then if the group all gets together and says, you know, we've thought about it, would you consider getting Starbucks? Okay. But I used to do this. There's another concept in here that says uh, if you have the... Um, that each responsibility should be matched with an equal amount of authority. 
And I used to tell somebody to go, when I'm writing, not in writing, but when I'm producing or directing, I'd tell somebody, go get this, this kind of costume, this is what we're looking for, this kind of location. And if they didn't do it exactly like I wanted it, I would criticize them. What I was doing was I was giving them the responsibility, but I was maintaining the authority. What that creates is they hated me. They didn't want to work for me. They weren't loyal to me. It was disunity, and it creates havoc on set. It was caused by me and my ego. And the truth is that if I trust God, then I will trust that whoever is doing that job has God's blessing also, and that by them doing it their way, we'll have this collaborative thing, and it'll be much better. And that's what I've learned, because each person brings something to it. In a relationship, your wife, your children, whoever it is, when you have a group conscience meeting, they bring something to it. At work, the same thing. In your office, on your softball team, whatever it is. But in order for me to do that, I have to get back to the foundation, which is there is a God, God loves me, and whatever God has for me is much better than what I could have done. And that's how we end up with the miracles. The big book says we still live in the age of miracles. Our own recovery proves that. And so these are some things that, you know, what I would, what I would hope you would do is go out, start traditions meetings, start meetings where they, and I don't mean relationships meetings where you get involved in a lot of outside stuff. Everything that I'm talking about is in AA literature. But it's how we take our principles and expand them. Now, the other thing that has changed a little bit since I came into AA is the fact that when I came in, we had an A meeting over here, an Al-Anon meeting here, and we then had um, uh, every night we went out to Howard Johnson's afterwards. All the meetings I went to were speaker meetings except for a step meeting where you could share if you had worked it, and if not, you could ask a question. So there's no time at which I could say something wrong in a meeting because unless I wanted to talk while somebody else is speaking. Um, so our discussions took place afterwards at the Howard Johnson's, but the families were there, and nothing ensured that I accepted responsibility for my own actions so much as listening to the Al-Anon talk. And most of those groups at the end of the month, we had an AA speaker and an Al-Anon speaker, and if there was one, an Alateen speaker. I accepted responsibility by listening to the Alateen or the Al-Anon. Um, and the second thing that happened was because they loved me and they hugged me, I started to feel that I, I started to feel forgiveness and feel like I fit in again with these people who are a family. We have a unique relationship with Al-Anon as opposed to all the other 12-step programs. That is, they are our family. And Barbara is going to share with you, I think we'll take a bathroom break for about five minutes, and then Barbara's going to share with you about uh, the wisdom of Al-Anon and what she's learned there, especially in terms of forgiveness, which can be an impediment to us learning how to live with others peacefully. Thank you. <laughs>